Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, but we will look at the entirety of the book of Galatians, or the entire chapter of Galatians chapter 3 this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. It's easy to make small talk with people, especially in a state like Alabama, when you ask a question like, well, tell me a little bit about your family. It's a natural question. It's an easy question in many ways to answer. If you're single, you talk about your parents, you talk about your brothers and your sisters. If you're married, you talk about when you got married. For my family, people aren't asking that question to ask, where were you born? What was the hospital? What was the day? What was the year? But generally, I'll say, well, I'm married 20 years to my wife, Danielle, three boys, eighth grade, sixth grade, and second grade. It just gives you, it gives you a level playing field, doesn't it? It gives you the lay of the land. It lets you know how to uh, relate uh, to a person. And just a real quick synopsis. You know, Paul, it, it, as we're walking through the book of Galatians, if you were to ask Paul a question like that, tell us a little bit about your family. I think the way that we could anticipate that he would answer that question would be wholly unique. He, he has written so much of the New Testament, yet we know so little about his biological family. He's written so much of the New Testament that we could really garner that he might point us to a passage like Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to answer that question, not with a biological heritage, but a spiritual heritage. We, we might could anticipate that when we said, Paul, tell us about your family, he would talk to us about our shared spiritual DNA as believers, as followers of Jesus. He, he probably would talk not about his brothers and his sisters biologically, but his brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, it helps us to really crystallize the very way that Paul emphasizes our spiritual family. For he says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This morning I want you to just revel in the fact that as a follower of Jesus, you're adopted into his family. The adoption of God's family is a, is a promise and a premise that I want you to stand on this morning as followers of Jesus, understanding how that is accomplished in your life and, and frankly, how that is not accomplished in your life. Let me tell you a couple ways that you're not adopted into God's family. Well, you're not adopted into God's family through your heredity, your, your familial, biological connections isn't what ensures your adoption into God's family. No matter how much your parents pray for you, that doesn't ensure one's salvation. No matter how much they bring you to church, that doesn't guarantee your salvation. Rather, it is the very truth of this passage that our natural state is not as sons or daughters of the Most High King. That can sort of sound against what oftentimes we believe. There, there are times you'll hear people say, everybody's a son or a daughter of God. Every person ever created is a son or daughter of God. 
And that resonates, doesn't it? We want to say, well, yeah, amen to that. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we're all sons and daughters of God Most High. The Bible actually teaches, yes, that we're created in the image of God. The Latin phrase for that is the imago Dei, that we're endowed with dignity and worth because we're all created in His image. But it doesn't mean that we're all created in the family of God. We're, we are, according to what Paul would say in Romans chapter 5, we are not sons and daughters of God, but yet we are enemies. Notice what he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So our natural state is alienation from a holy God. We must be adopted in to his family. So our adoption is not accomplished through our heredity. It's not accomplished because our parents are believers or our grandparents are believers. We must individually make that decision to be a follower of Jesus. So our adoption is not through our heredity, nor is our adoption accomplished through our works. Let's zoom out of Galatians 3 verses 26 through 29, and you notice that he starts the chapter in verses 1 through 5 with this very emphasis Oh, foolish Galatians. You see how he starts the chapter here? Who has bewitched you, he asked. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. And then he asked three questions. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of the faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the faith? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? You can feel, if you get real close to your Bible, you can feel the holy steam from the pages. Oh, foolish Galatians. I love the way J.B. Phillips, J.B. Phillips, who paraphrased the Bible, said this way as he's paraphrasing the first part of Galatians 3, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> it, it gives you the force of what Paul is saying here. Oh, he says, foolish Galatians. In chapter 1, verse 11, he calls the recipients of this letter, brothers, not here. Moves it to the formal. Moves it, moves it to, you know what he moves it to? If you remember being in class when uh, your professor came in or your teacher came in and said, Mr. Eldridge, I need to see you after class. Oh, foolish Galatians. You remember when you were growing up and your mother said, David Eldridge, come here. But, but, but when she said, my first and my middle and my last name, you remember when a mom or a dad would pull that out? That's what Paul's doing here as a, as a spiritual father to this church that he planted. He, he's calling them by their first name and their middle name and their last name, trying to catch their attention from the stupor of false belief that has bewitched them in the, in the word of the English Standard Version. In the New Testament, written in the original Greek, this word bewitched, this is the only time you're going to find it in the New Testament, that, that word. Tom Schreiner, who teaches at Southern Seminary, he, he says that Paul very well may be use, utilizing this word right here because he is saying that maybe like a magician who's cast a spell over them, preventing them from 
seen what is so blatantly obvious that they did not receive the Spirit of God through observing the works of the law. So he says, I'm going to ask you one question. And what does he do? He asks them three rhetorical questions. Notice the repetition. Notice the redundancy. He says first in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, of course it wasn't by the works of the law. Then he comes back in verse 3, are you so foolish? having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being perfected by your flesh. Well, of course they're not being perfected by their flesh. And then he comes back to it in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law? Well, the answer is, of course not. It is by, in verse 5, the hearing with faith. So we are not adopted into the family of God through our heredity, We are not adopted into the family of God through our works. Well, then you say, well, Paul, how in the world are we adopted into this spiritual family? And he says, I'm so glad you asked. We are adopted by our faith being placed in the finished work of Jesus. That's interesting the way that he answers this question because he continues in Galatians chapter 3 to say, hey, I want to point you back in verses 6 through 9 to the very prompt, it's almost like a courtroom scene where he says, exhibit A of how you're adopted into God's family is Abraham, the great patriarch of the faith. Notice what he says about Abraham, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice the quotations around verse 6. We'll come back to that. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. There are those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Notice again the quotations around verse 8. Then in verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is drawing upon that Old Testament story of of Abraham. Abraham didn't become a follower of Jesus because he leaves Ur. He isn't saved by his works to leave Ur. His his works, his leaving his home to go to the land that God showed him, it was an evidence of his inward faith in God. It isn't him walking is what justifies him, but rather his belief and his faith in God that is exhibited through his works and shown and displayed through his works, but his faith even then that saved Abraham, faith in God. It's one of the most powerful aspects of the cross of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus died on the cross, that ultimately the shadow of the cross, it cast backwards into the Old Testament, and it cast forward for all of us so that we can fall under the shadow of His grace when we, just like Abraham, in the Old Testament, look to God by faith, and when we look to God and His finished work by faith, so we become a part of Abraham's family. Now, how in the world do we do that? Well, in verse 8, he quotes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, you remember that time where Abraham and Sarah, they did not have any children, and God said, I'm going to bless you with land, and I'm going to bless you with children? Well, you know who the children of Abraham are? They're not only Jewish people who believe in the finished work of the gospel, but it is us Gentiles In this room, that as Paul would say in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're grafted into that wonderful family tree. And so all the nations are blessed through Jesus, 
the culmination of that promise set forth in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And, and that can, at times, that can get a little uh, hard for us to understand. And I know as we've had our collide choir sing here, sometimes it's helpful just to have a song that helps us remember what Paul is saying here. And so here's the song that some of you know. I would, I would dare say many of you know. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just... That was better. That was better. At at A25 and 940, they acted like they didn't know that song, but you know that song right here. Good. Let's do that again. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just... Wow, right arm, right arm, right here. So that's right. You got to shake the arm right here, right hand, and then right foot right there. So, but uh, we won't stand to do that. You get the point. So our adoption is accomplished through Jesus and our faith in Jesus, not through our works, not through our heredity here. So I want you to see the adoption into God's family. I want you to see, secondly, this morning, I want you to see the attire, the attire for God's family. Verse 27, after Paul gives this extensive excursion, verse 10 through verse 25, he says, I have a feeling some of you are wondering, what is the purpose of the law then? What's the purpose of the law? If you're not saved by observance of the works of the law, then what's the purpose of the law? And so Paul tells us in verse 19 that one of the purposes of the law is for us to see our sinfulness. To see it clearly how we fall short of God's standard. And at times, we willfully go beyond God's standard. We fall short of it in our imperfection. And we go beyond it in our transgression. It's sort of, as Paul is saying here in verse 19, what the law gives us clarity on is that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. When we have that standard before us, we realize how we fall short of that standard. And so really the purpose of the law in your life and in my life is to say, you cannot keep the law. And that's true. None of us in this room can perfectly keep the law. Praise God, there is one that has perfectly kept the law and his name is Jesus. And when we place your faith in him, he gives you you a new wardrobe. Verse 27 tells us, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Here's a passage to ponder. This is a place for us to pause. Because if if you haven't been following along with Paul's argument, and you just pluck this passage out of its context, you would say, well, Paul is saying that the way to become a follower of Jesus is to be baptized, right? I mean, it's just right here for as many of you as have been baptized in Christ and put on Christ, right? But what is that doing? It's removing it from its immediate context in the entirety That's not an overstatement. The entirety of what has come before this is to say, it isn't Jesus plus your circumcision. It isn't Jesus plus the keeping of the works of your law that saves you. It is Jesus alone and your faith in him alone. So he's not, in verse 27, becoming confused and then in that moment saying, actually circumcision is not good, let's be baptized. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He is saying that when we're baptized, we publicly declare to the world around us what God has inwardly done in our hearts. It is a way to show our family, our friends, our co-workers what has occurred in our life. 
It's a way to go public with your faith. The boys, my boys, attend school, and, and I, think, I think most schools do this. Certainly elementary schools have, uh, in the, uh, the, the greater Birmingham area, these Jersey Days, where each individual, you know, your sons and your daughters, your grandchildren, they have to wear their favorite team. And so in Alabama, nobody wears, really, maybe some people, but very few people are wearing high school teams. Very few people are wearing, on Jersey Day, their favorite basketball team or baseball team, pro teams. But I tell you what is occurring on Jersey Day, there's a lot of Alabama and there's a lot of Auburn jerseys that are floating around. Where my son attends school, you'll see some UAB jerseys. You'll see at times some Sanford jerseys, but there's a lot of Alabama, there's a lot of Auburn jerseys. So my son, who is coming into this foreign land, this, uh, <laughs> this environment, he, for two years, you'd be proud to know that he, he, still, he still puts on a jersey. Now, what, what, what jersey does he put on? Does he put on an Alabama jersey? Does he put on an Auburn jersey? Does he put on a Sanford jersey? Does he put on a UAB jersey? Well, he, puts on, he puts on maroon and white. And that should not be threatening to anyone in this room right here. <laughs> so, I thought about this. I thought, what, what, if, what if this would, the reason he puts on maroon and white, let me get to the point of this, is my, my dad's a Mississippi State grad. My granddad played football at Mississippi State. I was born in Starkville. My in-laws are both graduates of Mississippi State. A lot of Mississippi State things. I didn't go to state. My wife didn't go to state. So it's not as close and personal to me. But what, what if that narrative would have been this, that he puts on a Clemson jersey? I don't think I would be your pastor. I really don't think... <laughs> I don't think I would have made it through the pastor search team process right there. I moved to Alabama. I get a driver's license. I'm at the DMV, and they say, what's your name? I tell them my name. They say, what's your address? I tell them my address. They say, what's your height? What's your weight? Alabama or Auburn? They asked me that at the DMV right there. It's kind of, no, they didn't do that. But you get the point right there. So he, I asked him this just the other day. I said, son, do you, do you think you, you know, we're two years into this, kind of seeing where he stands, all of his friends have allegiances, Alabama, Auburn. I said, have you, have you ever thought about you know, who you like here? Do you like Alabama? Do you like Auburn? Do you like Sanford? He said, no. I'm a, I'm a Mississippi State fan. Like, the doxology occurred at our house. It was like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> Angels started singing. I mean, he standing strong, defending. what. Now, listen, Alabama fans, they don't, they don't casually wear Auburn jerseys. And Auburn jerseys don't casually wear Alabama jerseys. And Mississippi State fans don't casually wear Ole Miss jerseys. And, and we can all get along, but the reason you put on that jersey is because there's some kind of connection. There's some kind of deep ties. We, we realize that in eternity, hopefully you realize in eternity, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> I, think, I think we do realize that. Um, I, hope, I hope we do. I'm praying that we do. So, but, but here, they're just deep ties. They're, they're stories of where you met your spouse. There's stories of, of scholarships and stories of deep family traditions. 
And so wearing that jersey is not about scores. It's, it's about connections and memories and things that we do with our time. And so when you, as a follower of Jesus, identify with a far more important family, the eternal family, you want to wear the jersey. And how you do that is by publicly professing your faith in baptism. So, of course, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you would not be baptized. And, of course, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are baptized. Because he commands us to to display publicly that inward commitment. And Paul says in verse 27 that when we go forth with our faith publicly, that it is identifying the attire that God has clothed us with. You're baptized in Christ. You're identifying that his uh, blood has washed over your sins. As you go under the waters, you come up. You come up as a new creation, and you realize that there's a new attire that has been given to you. There's, There's a new wardrobe that has been given to you. We are sinful, but we're clothed with Christ's sinlessness. We are imperfect, but we're clothed with Christ's perfections. We are fallible, but we're clothed with Christ's infallibility. We are clothed with Christ. We can't afford this wardrobe, but praise God, we don't have to pay for it. It's been purchased for us. And so when you have faith and you are connected and adopted into this family, there is a wardrobe that you put on by Christ's finished work. It isn't a choice. It isn't something you do every day. It is your identity. It is who you are. You are unrighteous. You're clothed in His righteousness. You're imperfect. You're clothed in His perfection. Praise God for the attire of God's family. Praise God, not only for the adoption into his family, the attire of his family, but the diversity of God's family. In Galatians chapter 3, we have in verse 28, one of the most powerful passages and at times least understood of passages. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The family of God, Paul says, that we are adopted into, it transcends the natural human divides. The categories that at times can silo us and separate us. In Paul's day, ethnic background and social class and gender were things that that separated people. That that was 2,000 years ago. It was countercultural 2,000 years ago for Paul to say the very words that we read here. Why? Because Jews would separate themselves from Gentiles for purity's sake. 2,000 years ago, freed individuals looked down upon those that were slaves in Paul's day. And men would, would look down upon women as, as subhuman in Paul's day. So for Paul to say this is wholly countercultural in his day. And notice, notice how it still is countercultural in our day. What, what Paul is saying is, is the divides that naturally separate us, divides of ethnicity and race and class and gender, that what Paul is saying here is that Jesus unites us across these 
dividing lines, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Many of you have heard that phrase before. And it's true from the very words that Paul is saying here. Now, becoming a Christian, important to note, becoming a Christian does not erase our gender. Becoming a Christian does not erase our ethnicity. Becoming a Christian doesn't graduate us to different social statuses automatically that that you name Christ and then you claim your advancement and promotion. That that is not what Paul is saying here. But what Paul is saying is, is that a part of the family of God is going to represent the diversity of our world united around one who is more powerful than what divides us here on earth. Powerful word for us to ponder here because increasingly our culture is skeptical of the claims of Christianity. They're they're skeptical of the veracity of of the Bible. They're skeptical of the veracity of the resurrection. And and they're looking for something that can say, yeah, this actually is not just rhetoric. It's not just words that we say, but there is an underlying power of the resurrection. And when non-Christians see this passage displayed before them in the 21st century, it is a testimony of the power of the gospel at work in our midst. And when it's not present, it reinforces an unbelieving world's tendency to, to see the hypocrisy of the church at times. Many of you in the sanctuary are familiar with the work of Gandhi. Many of you are familiar with his influence upon India and, frankly, the world in his nonviolent leadership and protest there. The modern state of, of India looks completely different because of Gandhi's nonviolent revolution that he led. Some of you are familiar with Gandhi's story. It's an interesting story that he was captivated by an interest in world religions and no more so than his interest in Christianity. 1891, he's graduating from London after law school. He goes to South Africa to begin his early uh, practice. He's very enamored with the Sermon on the Mount, especially. Many of you know that the Sermon on the Mount, in some respects, becomes a template that he would grow out of and lead from the Sermon on the Mount. So he, he was curious about the claims of Christianity. He comes into South Africa. Historical reality was apartheid was at its height. So racial discrimination that was a part of the very fabric of the society was there as Gandhi shows up to South Africa. He goes to a Christian church one Sunday morning. He walks up the steps. He's greeted by a greeter who says, what are you doing here? Gandhi says, I've come to worship. The greeter's response in a belligerent tone was, your kind will never be welcomed here. Leave now, or we'll throw you down these steps. Some of you are familiar with one of Gandhi's most famous quotes about Christianity. The quote is, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, it's hard for us to speculate 
it's not worth much of our time to, to give hypotheticals here, but, but, but just imagine what India and our world would be like. If hypothetically Gandhi was, was, was not forced away from that church, but was embraced and welcomed into that church. And, and imagine what it would be like if he heard the gospel, a gospel that says that no matter what you look like from a skin tone, that Christ died for you. And welcomes you into the family of God. What, what would it be like if in that moment he, he trusted Christ, but he didn't trust Christ? And, and one obstacle to him trusting Christ was that Christianity, more than that, Christians rejected him. And so when Christians worship together across societal divides, when Christians work together across societal divides, when Christians live together across societal divides, we show the power of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that pervades even the diversity that at times can silo us and separate us. And I just remind us that that, that unity in the midst of diversity, it is our ending. It is our future. It is where we're headed to. Paul didn't hear what John would say in Revelation. But Galatians chapter 3 speaks to the very heartbeat of, of, what, of John as he sees the revelation and heavens are pulled back for a moment and he sees every tongue and every tribe and every people across the diversity of the world united praising God in the midst of their diversity. They, they don't become a sameness in heaven. We don't become one race, one ethnicity in heaven. No, it is the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ that is united. And so Paul would say that the diversity of God's family is something that we strive for. It is something we pray for. It is a picture of the gospel. So we work for it, which means we turn. We turn from. The biblical word for that is we repent of. Natural tendencies to divide. Natural tendencies to separate. And we work unity and the body of Christ to display the work of God's Spirit in our divided world. May it be so. Let us pray. So God, we are thankful for our adoption into your family. We are thankful for the wardrobe that you dress us with and your righteousness and your perfection. We thank you for the beautiful diversity of the family of God that transcends our countries, transcends our city, it transcends our state, and the beautiful diversity of God's family across, across ethnic divides, racial divides, socioeconomic differences. That every time that we gather here as a church local here at Dawson, we're part of a, a larger family. And, and we pray that even here, that the divides of age and the divides of socioeconomic classes and ethnicities, that these would be divides that we would work to pray for, to see the, the unity of the body of Christ surround what oftentimes can separate us.
We live in such a divided world. So many people outside of the church are, are crying out for unity. Fatigue from the division that seems to surround us. You have given us the hope of unity and the power of the gospel. May we live into the truths of this passage even this week. It's in your Son, our Savior's name that we pray. In the name of Jesus.